electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Right now, live from the Nasdaq market site overlooking New York City's Times Square, I'm Melissa Lee. Your traders on the desk are Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, Steve Grasso, and Guy Adami. Tonight on Fast, move over, De Niro. There's a new raging bull, Tony Dwyer of Canaccord, showing his horns today, upping his price target on the S&P to 3,200. That is 16% higher in the next six months. He will be here to tell us what has him pounding the table. Plus, Hot stocks heating up as Canada gets one step closer to legalizing recreational marijuana. And our resident cannabis king, Tim Seymour, has one name to buy right now. But first, we start off with the big tech rally. Q, the 1999 music because the tech sector is closing at another record high today. But while everyone has been watching the mega cap bank stocks like Amazon and Netflix quietly, a number of speculative what we are calling Web 2.0 stocks have been on a tear. Check out Etsy, Grubhub, Angie's. And Zillow all surging this year, hitting multi-year highs. So let's get deep here. What does a rally in these kinds of stocks say about the broader tech move, Guy? What I think it says to me is, and I'm sure that I'll get some feedback or some pushback on this, it says the complacency in the market is back to where we were probably a year or so ago when everybody thinks, you know, the Fed has our back and the market's going to go up in perpetuity. And quite frankly, they may be right. The market has basically staved off the lows on three different times. Tony Dwyer will come and speak to it. But what it says to me is the VIX is now below 12 and a half. People are looking for names that have beta, but then you look at valuations and they don't care. Etsy's 58 times, Zillow 63, Grubhub 49, Angie's list 54 times. So valuations don't matter. There are stocks that have performed now extraordinarily well over the last couple of weeks when it's been clear the market basically, again, pushed back those lows. And it speaks to me, in my opinion, of once again, renewed complacency. We've seen this time and time again. You go out further and further on the risk spectrum, right, looking for those returns in a market where it's increasingly difficult to find that extra return because bank stocks are the markets right so now. So why can't it just be that, though? So if I, if I chart Amazon and I chart Grubhub, it's the same exact chart. So if those names, those large-cap tech stocks, do sell off, all these underlying ones are going to sell off as well. They're going to sell off harder. More, right. They're going to sell off more. But I, so, look, here's the point here. Bottom line is, first of all, Pandora's up, uh, what, 60% this year? Do we think Pandora's business model is, is solid? I, I don't think so. So a lot of these are coming from oversold conditions. I think there's been reinforcement to, you know, the dash for trash, the dumpster diving, pick your alliteration or whatever coin you want to throw on this one. I think that's been working. It's been working in the retail sector. It's been working in technology. And I think there's a lot of very overweight trades. And I think there's a lot of managers, back to what you guys are saying, who are underperforming and need something that gives them a little extra. Yeah, Karen. Yep. Agree with everything each of them said. I, like, to me, to go in now and start buying names like Etsy and Zillow at these prices, I don't get. What the most attractive thing to me today is the VIX coming in so much. I don't like to sell like financials. Haven't really participated. I'm not going to sell those here. I am going to be buying puts with the VIX at this level. I mean, we, we've seen how the markets can just turn on a dime. And so, to me... That protection is pretty cheap. I'd much rather own that than start chasing. But doesn't it make you think, though, that the large cap tech last week was bought defensive and was bought for growth? So maybe if, if large cap tech has another couple of innings left with this market, then it, you would assume 
by proxy all these oh, underlying these bid that ones. That doesn't mean will I, too. I'm happy to sit out. You know, I'm, I have a large alphabet position, Facebook. I'd much rather be in that, even if they have relatively less upside. I believe they have a lot less downside. Mm -hmm. I'll play it that way. I, I just think that, that in the case of a lot of these names, first of all, there's a scarcity value in social media names. There's a scarcity value in some of these online plays. Um, there, there's just not a lot of market cap in everything below the top five stocks. Carter comes on here every day and points out that it's those five stocks and then the next 200 uh, add up to that. So that's what's going on here. It doesn't take much. Look at the short interest on these names. In yeah. most of these cases, you're north of 10%. In some of these cases, you're north of 20%. That has a lot to do with this move. I don't want to equate these names with what I think is high-quality growth. Yes, they're growth names in the mega-cap tech world, but these are very defensive names for a reason. These other names are not going to necessarily go higher one for one with them. These other names meaning the Zillow's, the Andrews, yeah, the yeah, 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 absolutely okay. not. All right. I know that you read the Wall Street Journal religiously. Religiously. As everybody else here does. Gets you on my front stoop, little paper man, throws it of off his bike. Of course, you the paper edition. But Fantastic. anyway. Next to the milk. There was, an article, the milk. there was an article about value and growth and how the perception of value and growth seem to be converging in this kind of market, where value and growth investors can both be in that FANG space. That there is a great overlap in this market because that, right. is, that is it. You're looking for... Well, to perform with the market, and in order to do that, you've got to be in the FANG stocks. But this sort of gets to this whole notion. Well, if everybody is in these stocks and you're looking to outperform the market, mm -hmm. where do you go? Well, if, and if so, not the Zillows and the Angies, then where? Tony will be on and say we have another rally left in store. I mean, I'm not going to give away his price target to the S&P, but it's significantly higher. So if the S&P gets to where Tony thinks it's going to go, the names, the four names we just mentioned, the Yetzis and the Zillows and the Angies list, they could rally anywhere from 25 to 40 percent on top of what they've done. I mean, we've seen it before. It'll happen again. Again, my fear is Again, Karen mentioned the VIX. I'll say it again. You know, VIX closing about 12 and a half speaks to a complacency that we saw a year ago. Maybe justified, by the way. You know, President Trump pulls a rabbit out of his hat with North Korea. You know, the market's got 100 S&P handles to the upside. So there are catalysts out there. Mm -hmm. Just scares me a little bit. This market has been bought back off of every catalyst to the downside that you would have thought would have killed the market. If the market continues to grind higher, these names will outperform. And I do believe it's a two-to-one outperformance versus the large-cap megatech mega names. See, my view is that the industrial names, and, and think of airlines, think of autos, think of these very, very inexpensive stocks that should be tethered to an economy. Let's face it, by the way, I think we've had a nice upswing in the macro over the last week or so. Um, I think these are the names that you need to perform. I think you need banks here. Um, I think, you know, otherwise we get into that place where we were in the end of 2015, where you had this very narrow rally, and in fact, it was telling well, you you're on a way to, to, to some why, type of Why haven't football. the banks, you would have thought this was a perfect scenario for the banks to perform, and they because just haven't. Because I, I think people, investors need to see, first of all, it's not just the interest, the, the yield curve. They need to get the sense that we're not in the ninth inning of a late cycle uh, rally that's been sugar hide by a tax cut. I think if you get the sense that actually we're going to grow 4% in the second quarter, and that we might grow 3.5% for the rest of the year, that is an environment that will have those things rally. Mm -hmm. Karen, why do you think banks haven't uh, participated? I don't know. I feel like it's just a rotation out, but I think it can change so quickly. Two weeks ago, the FANG stocks were really out of favor, or maybe it was three weeks ago. I, and so now, with the market going higher, people say, where is value? And I think value is in a J.P. Morgan, a Bank of America, mm -hmm. a Citibank. I think that they'll rotate back. All right. Well, one Wall Street bull is really showing his horns today. Canaccord Genuity raising its year-end S&P 500 price target to 3,200, which implies a 16% rally in just the next six months. That is the highest target on the street. Let's welcome the aforementioned bull, Tony Dwyer, Chief Market Strategist at Canaccord. 
Um, Tony, welcome back. Great to be here, Mel. You're even more bullish now. You decided to raise your target. So we want to go through the reasons why you're doing this. The first one, you point to a strong economy. <laughs> What's driving things here, Tony? Um, the, the Great tunes. I actually intentionally waited till this time of the year to raise my target. I kind of had an idea that I was too conservative early in the year. I said it on the show. And I wanted to see if there was kind of a euphoric fade of economic activity after you got the tax cut. But that hasn't been the case. The Atlanta Fed GDP now, which measures expectations for second quarter GDP, is almost 5%. It's 4.8%. You have NFIB, small business confidence is at a, a historic high. Consumer confidence is at a historic high still. And CEO confidence is near a historic high that the CNBC survey earlier today. So it's a really important thing that the that the economy is doing better than people are giving it credit for. Does it matter that European uh, numbers have been coming in and slowing throughout this year, basically? Oh, I, it's almost like I planted that question. So about it, uh, six months ago, when we were kind of fading Europe because the Citigroup economic surprise in Europe had peaked and was collapsing from plus 90 to minus 90, it's now the, for the top 10 industrialized economies, the, the um, index is at the lowest level since February 2016 when the world was collapsing. And the data is still positive. It just shows you how euphoric you were earlier in the year. When we were calling for a correction, it was when you had this global synchronized recovery. That was the fade time on Europe and the global economy. The fade time is not when you have the Citigroup global Citigroup economic surprise indices at the lowest level since almost a whole global collapse in February of 16. All right, let's go to your next reason. Earnings upside. What's your outlook here? <laughs> what, what is? Can you address the gorilla in the room with the elephant in the room? Matador. It's oh, the matador. Oh, the matador. It's the matador. Oh, oh, guy. Bull, oh I see. Uh, matador. Okay. They should outlaw bullfighting, by the way. <laughs> Terrible sport. Tony. On, on earnings, they were up 26 per. I, I was frankly just too low at $155 a share. I moved up to 160 because yet yeah, we're up 26 percent in the first corner and quarter. And to these, to Tim and Karen's comment on the industrials, the financials. It was upside surprise there, also in consumer discretionary and information technology, four sectors that have done uh, really well year to date. So the bottom line is the earnings are blowing away expectations. They're going to be up over 20 percent for the next three quarters. That's your catalyst. Maybe it's slow and not exciting, as the matador suggests. <laughs> Disturbing. But, <laughs> but, but at the end of the day, earnings are going to be terrific. My number for next year only assumes 5 percent growth. That's just nominal growth. That's 3% plus 2% inflation, mm. real GDP plus inflation. If you include the buyback impact on earnings per share, record margins on earnings per share, I'm probably too low again. So if anything, I'm still too conservative, mm. even with my higher numbers. Let's go back to the matador. Mm. Giddy up. Market got its mojo back, says Tony. Ah, nice. <laughs> Explain that. What do you mean by mojo? So again, in, in mid-January, when we had been talking about a correction here on the set, it was because only 12% of newsletter writers were bearish. Listen, I, you know, I'm boring. Everything's good. Don't worry about a thing. That doesn't sell newsletters. The world is going to end. You better subscribe to my newsletter today is what sells newsletters. To have only 12% of investors' intelligence newsletter writers surveyed as bearish is basically given up on their business model. It was the lowest level since 1986, and you've corrected when it's happened before. 
we got that correction. Not only did we get that correction, you got a retest of that low. To Guy's comment earlier about the three retests of the low, mm -hmm. that has lowered sentiment. You had at the peak in January, 66% of newsletter writers were bullish. Now we're all the way down to 50%. All right, Tony, good to see you. Thank Great you. to be here. Thanks, Tony Dwyer, Canaccord. Guy, you ever dressed up like a matador? Of course I have, on every weekend, as often as I can. <laughs> <laughs> I might say, Just keep it at home. <laughs> see, I told you it's disturbing. That's his ringtone, by the way. <laughs> 3,200, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, he's been right before. I think uh, the way this market has been bought back <laughs> every like you don't agree with him. Every, well, yeah, I, I don't agree, been with, right I don't agree with I don't agree with the picks because if you believe 3,200, you have to believe that tech is going to run wild here. So I believe that tech he will run tech. wild. I'm, I'm long time. I mean, that's that's the three sectors. Yeah. Sorry to jump in, but so back, I think a goodbye guess has he's actually brought himself back. 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 Sorry. So I'd be long if you look at XLF. We talked about XLF versus the regionals. KRE. KRE is up 10%. So if there's a vig that you're getting paid for regional banks over the XLF, I would stay with that one. I would stay in the XLK, which is the ETF for large cap tech. But I think I would walk away from industrials that are flat on the year. What do we do today, Tim? Um, you know what? I've been nibbling around in some reflation trades that I think continue to work. I actually think commodities are starting to come back. Look at copper at four-month highs, so I think some of these trades continue to work. Um, I kind of agree with everything that Tony said, other than the fact that I'm not sure we have to trade at yesterday's multiple tomorrow. Um, I think we're in a, an environment where the Fed is tightening, and I think you see multiple contraction, um, even though I think the world's a pretty good place. Karen? Didn't do a lot today. I'm looking at puts. I will buy more puts tomorrow if we don't see a meaningful move up in the VIX. May I quickly play the role of the picador, which, as you know, is the person that jabs the bull. In oh, I didn't know that. Yes, yeah. the matador. I didn't know that. But the so how do you know that, but not I the guy with the cape? Fight. I'm offended by it. And for our <laughs> friends watching in Barcelona, I think you Barcelona. should abolish it. Barcelona. But, you know, you asked Karen a question. Why do you think the banks are underperforming? And, and what comes to mind to me is maybe, they're, maybe they are pricing in now potential systemic risk with the aforementioned over the last 9 to 12 months, Deutsche Bank, which continues to trade abysmally. Coming up, the retail rally raging on today. One top technician says it's gotten so hot, you cannot even short it. He will give us three names to buy right now. Plus, Apple hitting a new all-time high today, inching closer to that trillion-dollar market cap milestone. So how much bigger can Apple really get? History suggests a lot. We'll tell you what we mean. And later, Tesla CEO Elon Musk set to take the stage at the company's annual shareholder meeting in less than 20 minutes. We'll bring you the very latest headlines. We are live at the Nasdaq market site in New York City's Times Square. Much more Fast Money still ahead. Whether I leave Starbucks or not, I will always be all in at Starbucks. But this has been planned for over a year, and my confidence and faith in Kevin and the leadership team, the long-term opportunity for Starbucks, the company's in a great position, and it's always been a team sport. It's the right time for me to leave, and I have other opportunities and other things that I want to do. That was Howard Schultz, along with our own Andrew Ross, working on Squawk Box today, commenting on his imminent departure from Starbucks. He's set to step down as a company's executive chairman, effective June 26. But as optimistic as he is about Starbucks' future, Schultz is leaving the company at a time when the cafe empire faces slowing growth worldwide and a controversial decision to open their restrooms to everybody. Shares of Starbucks have stalled and are down almost 3% this stalled. year. Get it? Nice. So is Schultz really leaving the company? at the right time. And you take a look at the decline today, down 2.5%. You take a look at what the stock has done over the past two years, which is basically nothing. 
right, and slowing North American sales. Well, but but this is a company that I think is a, vic a victim of its own success. I mean, first of all, there, there's an enormous competitive landscape out there that I think is chasing Starbucks. I think these guys continue to grow uh, in different consumer channels. They've actually looked at their business, including their consumer products business. They had a big sale to Nestle's that I actually think is going to be accretive to EPS. Um, I, the fact that the stock has done nothing in two years doesn't mean that the company is, is in, in bad straits. And in fact, I think they've extended their brand. I think they've grown uh, around the world. They're going to continue to grow in China. The margins in the U.S. are difficult. There's no question about that. But when I look at this brand and I look at their opportunity and their footprint, um, Kevin Johnson's the CEO. He's been the CEO for a long time. I don't think that, that, that Howard Schultz necessarily, outside of the vision, is the guy that um, has, has necessarily been running the show day to day anyway. I get your point about the stock, but the context of the stock's move is, or lack of movement, is that we're in a market that is, I mean, the Nasdaq closed at a record high. I mean, we're at record highs effectively on the markets, and Starbucks hasn't been able to trade along with it even. Right. I, you know, I just, but I mean, you know, look at what McDonald's did for years. Look at what Coca-Cola's done for years. It's not a tech stock. I mean, I, I'm not sure what we Yeah, want. but it's been a, co a coffee has been underperforming. So Dunkin' Donuts is not, has not performed year to date as well. So I think it's just a rotation out of this space. But I do believe that he's been the spearhead. He's been the tip of the spear for this company. And without him, I think it outperforms to the downside even more so than Dunkin' Donuts. Oh, I don't agree with that at all, actually. I think this has been telegraphed for a while. You talk about the stock having underperformed, actually, since he's been in this role, right, the chairman's right. role. So him leaving the chairman's role, to me, doesn't signal, uh, it doesn't signal think, a big move. I, I think to that point is exactly what I was making is that it has underperformed since he took this job, so people saw him as not the leader that he once was, so it's been underperforming. Look, I think that what's happening with the company's growth now, what's happening with the underlying business, is what, what the story is with the stock, not Howard Schultz. If you think about I understand his importance to the DNA of this company, but if you think about the reaction of sort of rock star uh, you know, CEOs stepping down. This is a pretty muted response. This isn't Andreessen. This isn't one. Of, I mean, this isn't one of these guys. Um, you know, this is definitely not, not Steve. You know, Steve. It's not like if it's Elon not, Musk would step down. That would be cataclysmic. Yes. You know. So maybe people took a critical look at Starbucks on, in the wake of these headlines that said, you know, and, and I will say, and Tim disagrees, and that's what makes Mark, I think Starbucks, given the last year of earnings, is expensive at 21, 22 times forward earnings with decreasing margins, and maybe it made people focus more on valuation. I'm in Karen's camp, though. This was announced effectively December of 2016, and the stock traded higher, up to 64, into his departure in the spring of 17. So if you didn't see this coming, you weren't paying attention. I think what the headlines did is get people to focus, and I do think people are now saying, you know what, maybe valuation-wise at this juncture doesn't make a lot of sense. Still ahead, Apple to infinity and beyond. Well, if history is any indication, that could be the case. We will tell you what we mean. I'm Melissa Lee. You're watching Fast Money on CNBC, first in business worldwide. In the meantime, here's what else is coming up on Fast. You can find me any day at Macy's. What is Macy's? It's a surging retailer that's up 128% from its one-year lows. But if you miss the move, a top technician says there are three other retailers about to make a similar run. And speaking of hot, pot stocks are on fire. And there's one name that Tim Seymour says is a smoke and buy right now. That name when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Retail stocks have been on a tear. The retail ETF XRT jumping nearly 8% over the past month alone. Let's get to Bob Pisani at the New York Stock Exchange for the details. Hi, Bob. 
Hello, Melissa. Retail is on a bit of a tear at the moment. The Spider S&P 500 retail ETF is up 1.8%. That's on pace for its third positive session in a row. Retailers, along with tech, lead the new high list with Macy's, Kohl's, Ralph Lauren at 52-week highs, Tiffany and TGX are at historic highs. It's up 7% since early May, handily outperforming the S&P's 4% gain. So what's going on? We've got positive commentary on the earnings front. Traffic picked up considerably once the weather improved. Now, we heard this from Dollar Tree, we heard this from American Eagle, we heard it from Gap, we heard it from Williams-Sonoma, Target, Kohl's, TGX. That should translate, finally, into some meaningful top-line growth, hopefully. Now, there was also talk of more full-price selling, less promotional activity, which Macy's also mentioned. So it was overall great earnings. As for the short interest, we'll get new numbers for the past two weeks very shortly, but it's likely short interest has declined on the better commentary. Now, the way to look at this is by the days to cover. How many days of normal trading would it take to cover all the shares sold short in a particular company? Now, four or five days is typical for many companies in the S&P 500 for short selling. Some like Nordstrom and Target, JCPenney, they still have fairly high days to cover, indicating some short interest still out there, but they're lower than they were earlier in the year. Others like Macy's have very low short interest right now. Tiffany's is very low as well. That's risen a bit recently, however. Now, separately, worth mentioning is one notable name, and that's Walmart. It's been left out of the rally completely, really. The stock's down 4% since May and almost 1% for the year. So here's the bottom line. The pressure from Amazon is still there, but for the first time in a while, a rising tide is lifting all boats. Back to you, Melissa. All right. Thank you very much, Bob Pisani. Tim, I'm curious what you make of the uh, low days to cover on Macy's. Well, if you look at where Macy's was in December, it was double that. So I, I actually think that this is why you start to get, you get neutral on Macy's, even though I was uh, uh, at least encouraged yesterday when we played whatever that game was. Like they, get, they get lost Owned in my it. head. Um, but, but if you think about Macy's, the, the couple things that people are getting behind here, first of all, their e-commerce business, right, the part they weren't going to compete in is going to grow in the high teens probably for the next couple of years. They've gotten to a place where fourth quarter 2017 comps were positive for the first time in 11 quarters. The last time this happened was 2010, and they went on an 11-quarter run. That's what J.P. Moore Morgan wrote about. Um, I think at 41 bucks, it's in the price. Karen, where do you see on some of those names that Bob mentioned? Well, I, I, I mean, yesterday we talked about the shop or drop, shop right. it or drop it. I, I just find the department store run actually this last week just kind of euphoric. And I agree with Tim on, on you know, Macy's having run so far, so fast. The valuation was very, very cheap if you thought they would find their way out of it, which Tim did, and out of, you know, out of their debt. Right. And they were able to, it never became really an issue, but that was one of the things weighing on the stock and one of the things I think that attracted the short interest. But here, I mean, they're not crazy expensive, but some of those, those threats, line. right, they're, you know, I, I wouldn't be chasing calls here. I said that yesterday. Yesterday would have been a great day to chase, mm. but that's okay. I wouldn't be chasing it here either. All right. Well, our next guest says the retail run is so hot. You can't short it. He's got three names to buy right now. Let's go off the charts with Chris Verone of Strategus Research Partners. Hi, Chris. What are you hey, looking Melissa. at? Hey, Melissa. Yeah, listen, don't fear strength here. We know this has been a very good group over the last uh, number of weeks. But I think when you look internally, it says to us that there's still more to go here. What we're showing you here is the retail index. The number of stocks making a 65-day high just continues to expand. Those are bullish internals uh, as the index breaks out of this base. And when you look at some of the individual names, you got to start with the bellwethers. This is Nike. It's largely been in this 70 uh, on the high side, 
50 uh, on the low side range for the last three or four years. It's been dead money. It's up and out of this base. 73, 74 today. We think 90 uh, is your target here. Look at some others. Under Armour, same story. This was a devastating bear market. Down 80 percent, 60 down to 10. We think this thing has bottomed in a meaningful way. Yet the streets behind the curve. 32 analysts uh, watch the stock. Only six buys. We think that's a mistake. And then you look at WSM. Uh, I think we mentioned it before. Uh, another name starting to break out of a base. Short interest here is still really high. So it's hard for us to say that this move is over yet. Own some of these names. Don't fear strength. Should we invite Chris over to the desk? Have to. How All can right. you invite him over, over the desk Chris. when you don't invite Car? Of Ryan course you should. Will bring the chair yeah, man. You know, of course you should. Thank you, Ryan. It's no rubber stamp here, guy. Yeah, Come you on have over to earn first, the spot earn at the desk. Not everybody gets a medal. Thank God. <laughs> Chris, um, Bob had mentioned Walmart being an underperformer. Yeah. What do you see wrong in Walmart's chart? It's languishing here, right? It's in this 84, 85 range. In markets with momentum, you want to own leadership. I don't think you have big downside here. Uh, but is it the leader in this group? It's not. I'd rather own a Nike. I'd rather own Under Armour. So let's not play it on the short side, but let's not look to it as a leader to stock. This is a market that has momentum, and you own leadership when a market. Uh, so, so, Chris, when I look at those charts yeah. that you just uh, mapped out for us, yeah, yeah Nike, Williams-Sonoma, and Under Armour, all of them are either overbought on a relative strength index mm -hmm. or very close to it. And so I think— so, that's bullish. So, so what would be educational for everyone watching is how you can unwind that re relative strength overbought status in a stock. Overbought is the most bullish thing in this business. I think it's always mistaken as a bearish indicator. When there's momentum in a stock, you want to embrace it. I don't think we want to fear strength here. When you look empirically, when you get stocks very overbought, believe it or not, their forward returns are stronger than average over the next three, six, uh, and 12 months. So embrace this move in those overbought names. Yeah, I would agree. Williams-Sonoma, you look at their quarter, it's a pretty ridiculously strong quarter. The margins hung in there, big EPS beat, huge short interest, as Chris mentioned, and you're going to start getting the people to chase. So whether it's overbought or not, it doesn't matter. The fact that it's breaking out to the upside, and the same way that analysts are chasing Macy's, J.P. Morgan just raised their numbers, and I think Evercore just went from a, a short double upgrade yesterday. to a buy. Yeah. So you're going to start getting people tripping over themselves. But here's what's happening, I, I think, and Chris, maybe you see this. So certain sectors are getting, they're, they're slapping the historical multiple on these stocks, and that allows them to bring them up after a big rally, which they, they weren't willing to do months ago. Is that happening just in discretion? Yeah, and I think what's interesting about some of these earnings numbers, the earnings actually haven't been that exceptional. But the fact that they have stopped going down, right? If you think about the last couple of years, if they missed the number, they got hammered. They don't behave like that anymore. So let's respect the character of these stocks. All right. I got to understand something about this overbought because yeah. I think <laughs> it's the most important thing you said. At some point, though, overbought means at the top. So where are you? Where is one in sure. the overbought what inning of overbought are you, and is there a number of overbought that you look for? Is there some uh, absolute So we level? think about it in context that? of the trend, right? So empirically, when a stock is overbought, the forward returns only suffer when it's already in a downtrend. So if these names were broken and they were rallying into resistance or if they were rallying into 200-day averages, that would be the bearish signal. When you're in an uptrend and you're overbought, your forward returns are well above average over the next 3, 6, uh, and 12 months. So don't fear strength. Embrace these things. Thank you, Very helpful. Thank you. Chris Verone, mm. just quickly, would you shop it or drop it? I mean, I'll let you pick 
any of the three names that Chris had mentioned. So Under Armour has grossly underperformed for mm -hmm. such a long time that I would rather be a buyer of Under Armour, even with that overbought or momentum status that is in the name. I'd rather buy that than Nike. All right, still ahead. Tesla's annual shareholder meeting about to kick off any minute. We'll hear from the always colorful Elon Musk later this hour. Plus, pot stocks heating up this week as our neighbors to the north get one step closer to legalizing recreational use. And our resident pot expert, huh. it says pothead, but I'm not going to say well that. Tim Seymour um, has a name that could cash in on the reefer rally. Much more fast right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Pot stocks on fire in the last oh. week on the back of some upcoming developments in the space. Aditi Roy has got the details from San Francisco. Hi, Aditi. Hi, Melissa. Those stocks might be heating up as Canada appears to be on the brink of legalizing recreational marijuana. A key vote in the country's Senate is scheduled for this Thursday, which could pave the way for legal sales to begin by the end of the summer. This is some industry watchers are also weighing in. Deloitte Canada seemed to indicate legalization in Canada is just a matter of time. The firm tweeting, the world is watching as Canada steps into the spotlight as the first G7 country to legalize recreational cannabis nationwide. Deloitte's report from this morning projects Canadians will spend a total of $7.2 billion on cannabis products in 2019, increasing their overall consumption by 35% once recreational marijuana is legalized. The firm also estimates legal sales will make up more than half that total, or about $4.3 billion, but says the illegal market could be still worth more than $1 billion. The developments this week have lit up several pot stocks. They include Aurora, which is up 7% over the week. Canopy growth up more than 8% for the week. Protos Group shares are up a whopping 15%. And MedRelief is up nearly 5.5%. I also talked on the phone with Bruce Linton, the CEO of Canada's Canopy Growth, with just listed shares on the NICE. He said with legalization, quote, we think for the next 18 months, what we produce is already spoken for. Melissa, he says they've been ramping up for this for the past two and a half years, and they already have several provinces in Canada signing up with them. Wow. Aditi, thank you. Aditi Roy from San Francisco. Well, if you're looking to get into the sizzling pot stock trade, Tim's got some advice to help you light up your portfolio. So, Tim, why don't you head over to the plaza and break it down? Okay. So, I'm trying to give you a bit of a basket on how to, you know, to trade this very exciting space, which is, I think, a combination of the recreational trade. It's also the biopharma trade. And so, if you think about it, I think this is maybe 25 percent of your basket right now. Um, if you think about what's really going on, and the Canadian producers really are the ones that are dominating global production. In fact, Bruce Linton from Canopy is spending a lot of time in Germany and Latin America, where, in fact, they're using the Canadian model to grow. And then there's the other part of this, which is I think a lot of people are also looking for, typically in some emerging markets, and I don't mean necessarily the ones that I've historically followed, but if you're following a market, you don't necessarily want to be selling gold. You want to be selling the picks and the shovels to the gold miners. And that's the way people are looking to get exposure to cannabis, which is the real estate plays, through packaging plays. And I think we've got a couple pretty good ideas for you here. Um, but ultimately, if you look at what's going on with Canopy, growth. I think this is really, call this, you know, Bitcoin to the crypto world. I think this is the largest market cap. It's now listed on New York, as we've seen. And you can follow the way this stock has actually re-rated and been effectively a conduit for the whole sector. But you can see in just one year, we had this blow off. It was very similar, by the way, to what was going on in the crypto space. We peaked in right after in the new year. We had a massive pullback. We've had this consolidation phase. And now we're, we're ticking higher on a couple different things. First of all, for Canopy, it's because this stock is listed on the New York Stock Exchange. Let's face it. 
it's a proxy play. People can buy it here. Um, and even though they're a Canadian producer, they're using that currency. And I've talked about this. The Canadian guys are actually going to be using probably expensive stocks, frankly, to use that to be buying through their shares and doing an M&A in the United States and other parts of the world. And I think Canopy is obviously a very well-run company and not a place, bad place to get involved. And I'm not sure if we've got uh, the underlying tickers here. We don't. So, you know, if I was going to put a basket together, I'd be 25% in Biopharma. Maybe that's a GW Pharma that trades in the New York. I'd spend 50% in some of the big guys like Canopy or Afria, and then I'd get into some of the bottling names and whatnot. Karen's got a question. Yeah, sure. so in that clip they were talking about production already being sold out. I'm curious, how long does it take to actually produce a crop? I'm just asking for a friend. Well, you know? I, I, <laughs> I mean, if, if you think about it, this, the cycle for these guys is anywhere from three to six months. The, the production part of this, even though it seems so obvious, and obviously there are plenty of people that have been growing cannabis for, for, for years and, and there's an amateur market. And bottom line is, this is one of the hardest things to grow. And between mites and diseases, a lot of the big producers and certainly a lot of the guys that are up and coming have had big issues with getting production. Bruce Linton talked about whether they would be able to meet all the demand in Canada alone, and people think they will not. Ross has got a question. So, so, Tim, when you look at this as far as United States and Canada was, was where it really started and gained traction and United States, where are the international uh, ideas? Where, where is this going in the next five years? Is this just a global play that this is really uh, on the ground up that we're looking at? It's very difficult to, to really quantify what this market will be globally. Um, the, the numbers are anywhere from 200 billion to 300 billion. That's where you consider the recreational markets, the medical markets, um, and some level of, of the, the, the wellness around that. When you get into the biopharma side of it, I mean, think about when you walk into a drugstore, the over-the-counter market, and think about where 80% of people are spending their money in pain relief and sleep aids. That's such a massive market. That's why the biopharma wellness side of this is the part that I think is the most exciting. Thanks for that, Tim. Thank you. Our resident pot expert. So I had Elon Musk about to take the stage at the Tesla shareholder meeting right now. We'll bring all the latest headlines you need to know. Plus, it is a question on every trader's mind. How big can Apple really get? Well, we went all the way back to the early 80s to get some clues. More on that right after the break. Welcome back to Fast Money. And as Apple hits new highs and is now inches away from a trillion-dollar market cap, the question on everybody's mind is just how big can it get? For more, let's get to the man who's already larger than life, <laughs> Dom Chu, back in the newsroom. Hey, Dom. Well, not even in the same ballpark or conversation, Melissa, but thank you. A few do compare to Apple when it comes to that largeness aspect. Apple just a mere $50 billion away from that psychological $1 trillion level. All it has to do is gain around 5% from here to get to that 1T. Now, some of the bulls for Apple are looking at relative historical valuations and arguing that Apple could have a lot more runway. Not as much about the fundamental business outlook here as it is about the overall weighting in the S&P 500. According to Howard Silverblatt from S&P Dow Jones Indices, Apple is currently around a 4% weighting. But it's not the biggest weighting that we've seen for a stock in the index in modern history. Silverblatt notes that in data going back to 1980, it was actually Big Blue that had the most heft at any one point in the S&P. In 1982, IBM was worth closer to $96 billion, which translated into a roughly 6.4% weighting. The total market value of the S&P 500, as of the end of May, just shy of $23.5 trillion. In a vacuum environment, with all other variables held constant, a 6% weighted stock 
would be worth nearly $1.4 trillion. Now, it's a totally imperfect comparison to make, and obviously market dynamics aren't that simple, but it is just one of the justifications from the Apple bulls. As for the bear cases, we know it's a big company. Growth will be harder to find in size and scale. And Melissa, those companies that have actually reached those market cap pinnacles in the past, they've ended up surrendering that throne to others as time has gone by. Think IBM, think AT&T, think GE, think ExxonMobil, think Microsoft, etc. Of course, back to you. All right. Thank you very much, Dom Chu. And back in the day when those companies that Dom had listed were the dominant companies, nobody ever thought, Oh, they'll be by the wayside, right? Right. So what will separate Apple, Apple from becoming those well, companies? Well, the hope is what will separate them. And the point that everybody on this test has made, Pete's made for quite some time, is that they're transitioning from a hardware company to a basically mm -hmm. services. services company. And that will give them a better valuation. That gives makes people a stickier clientele. If Sony had done that, maybe we'd talk about Sony the same way. I have my reservations, but... That's what makes market. Reservations about them becoming a I, You know, again, company. I think it's clear they're headed that way. But in order to get the valuation that they covet, I think that revenues of services has to be north of 25 percent. And last quarter, I think it was 15 percent. It's headed that way. I mean, it's, and, and what's interesting about Apple is, you know, we're no longer talking about these, these um, refresh cycles and the volatility that comes with them. Think about, think about the opportunities you've had to buy Apple stock after or fading one of those, uh, you know, lead-ups to that. It's becoming a lower amplitude. This is the term that UBS uses. This is their article. They basically said, you're looking at Apple, those cycles have a lower amplitude, meaning it's a less volatile play, which gets it to that higher multiple. Yeah, I but just when you say we, we're not looking at those, I'm still long the stock, but this was a couple of months ago. We were still were looking at those. Everyone was saying that no one's coming out for the iPhone. No one's upgrading the iPhone yet. So I, st I still think we're caught in that prism. But I do believe that everyone is so myopic on the trillion dollar target that we're going to take it out. And then everyone's going to worry about the trillion and a half company. So I do believe Apple is still a buy. I think that trillion dollars is the Roger Bannister, which you oh, know. Oh, four-minute mile there, Melms. Four-minute mile. So no one huh. thought you could do it. It was humanly impossible, right? right? So stock market impossible. That's but a great reference. Yeah, oh, thank you. Like, I was going to go Sebastian I was the guy Coe. who played Hulk. I don't know. It would have been wrong, too. <laughs> anyway, so I think we'll see... I think we'll see a couple others as well. Apple obviously is the most likely candidate, if for no other reason than it is statistically the closest by a lot. But I think we'll see others in the not-so-distant future. All right. Well, options traders are betting Apple's shining rally is far from over. For more, let's get out to Mike Coe in San Francisco. Hey, Mike. Yeah, so the bullish whoa, flow whoa, in the options wait, wait, land for Can Apple. he stop for a sec? Does he hear me? Yeah, he you hears can talk. you. Every we are on you. TV. <laughs> what is going on with Mike? He's He's with Tim Seymour. He's Listen, for the vest. Look, we've got Tim an issue with that. Sport, Tim, Tim sports the vest. Steve sport, sports the vest. Hey, I'm just trying to blend in a you little look, bit here. Look, and I owe each of them one of these things, too. That was unbelievable. It's you look fantastic, Mike. Right. I'm sorry that guy interrupted you. Let's talk about Apple right. for right. a second. Back to options, oh. Mike. Back to options. All right, let's talk about Apple. So, we, you know, the bullish flow in Apple options has continued. We saw more than two times uh, the put volume in calls today. Most of that activity is concentrated on the 195 strike. One of the big notable trades I saw was the August 195 calls, 1,860 of those trading for $6.10 apiece. That's a pretty big premium outlay. So that's a bet that's going to be above 201.10 by August expiration. And, you know, one thing I would quickly point out, last Friday, 195 was also the call strike that Dan Nathan was choosing on options action. So maybe they're listening to him a bit. Hmm. All right, Mike, thank you.
Mike Coe, bestin' it up yeah. in San Francisco. Good. All right, for more options action, check out the full show Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Coming up on Mad Money tonight, Jim Cramer sits down with the new Palo Alto CEO. Here's a sneak peek. I look at the cloud revolution. It's very, very early on the enterprise space. Find out just how big that business can become at the top of the hour on MAD. Plus, Tesla holding its annual shareholder meeting as we speak. We are monitoring that. We'll bring you the very latest in just a moment. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Fast Money. Tesla's annual shareholder meeting is underway right now. Elon Musk has taken the stage. CNBC's Phil LeBeau is in Chicago monitoring that webcast. Hey, Phil. And Melissa, Elon's been talking, I'd say, for about five minutes. And at the beginning, he was talking about how proud he is of the team and how well they're doing. What you're looking at here is the webcast of the annual meeting uh, that's going on right now out in Fremont, California. One piece of news, Elon Musk just said that uh, their production system is showing the capability of building 500 cars per day, 3,500 cars per week, and they are spooling up production. Now, I know people will pick at this and they'll say, well, does that mean they're building 3,500 cars a week right now? or just that the production system has the capability to do that. That's a little unclear at this point, but that's the only real piece of news that's come out, especially when we look at everybody wants to know what's going on with Model 3 production, because remember, they have said that by early in the third quarter, they expect to be at 5,000 vehicles, 5,000 Model 3s per week. So we're going to go back and listen to more and see if they have a little more clarity on that particular point. Melissa? Do you have any timing, Phil, on, on what the actual vote will be on the three directors and the motion to separate or to pull Elon Musk from being chairman? Uh, I do not. I do not. That all took place earlier, and I believe... Just so you know, I was getting in the chair and I heard some applause there. I believe that the three directors were uh, reelected. By the way, there was no expectation that they were not going to be reelected uh, or that Elon Musk is going to have his job separated. Almost everybody, given, given Elon Musk's voting, 22 percent, plus the supermajority of the board, it, it was not unlikely that any of the proposals to either not elect those uh, directors or to split the jobs would go through. Bill, at these shareholder meetings, does, does Musk tend to get any sort of um, tough questions, or is it really sort of like a, a, a fan convention? More of a fan convention, yeah. easily more of a fan convention. Now, there are, there are very few tough questions. You'll have somebody step up and say, look, I think we'd be better if you split the jobs of chairman and CEO. Well, the fact of the matter is they've always pretty much, this has been his company. You know that, Melissa. And as a result, most of the people who show up there, they believe in Musk's vision, and they are there to hear more from him. All right. Uh, Phil, I know you'll keep monitoring this. Phil LeBeau in Chicago for us on the Tesla shareholder meeting. We should note that in the after-hour session, the stock is up by 1.5% and is moving. Um, so obviously this is something that a lot of people are watching. Guy? Again, not for the faint of heart. I'm not trying to pretend I've been right, I've been wrong. But what I will say is it's fended off $280 a couple times. It, it traded lower in the aftermarket yesterday. There was some negative article that I sort of came across. Now it's back to levels we closed at yesterday. I still think you can own this stock basically against 280. And I think they've, the bears have tried everything somewhat unsuccessfully, not unlike the S&P, which leads me to believe we have some upside here. That's exactly where I added stock. I added stock around 280. I'm still long the name. I do believe that you're, you're hearing him in the background. He's very calm. And the stock got beaten up when he was nasty to an analyst. And it got beaten up to the tune of $20 or $25. I thought that was aggressive to the downside. That's why I bought it off the dip. I still believe that you're going to see a pop way above $300 in this name. 
I mean, for all the people that say no one's going to sell the stock, the people that love it, love it, and will love it forever, um, I mean, the, the sheer underperformance to the triple Qs for Tesla, isn't this a tech stock? So, I mean, why is it down 40% against the triple Qs in one year? Um, so you can't tell me that this has been a great place to be invested if, in fact, this is a tech stock and not an auto company, which is my understanding is what it is. Up next, we got the final trades. Stay tuned. For the final trade, let's go around the horn. Tim Seymour. Yeah, took, take a look at this sector. GW Pharma, Epidiolex, I think it's still worth owning. I'm in there. Karen Feinerman. Yes, Allergan has been under a lot of pressure for a long time, part of the space. But now with Appaloosa in there, I think something interesting could happen. Steve Grasso. IBM was my secular short. Remember when we did that a couple years ago? It was long my secular no. short uh, position <laughs> in, a, in a stock forever. Now I think it's a buy against a 139 level as support. IBM buy. Can we Guy just Dami. play that matter? Can we just? There you go. They're good. Too bad you didn't have your costume on you. I have okay. actually have it. Hold on. <laughs> no, no. Because uh, keep, keep it in the back room. Well, you Whatever know there, means. Mel, let me tell Whatever you something. I thought the sell-off in AMAT post-earnings was overdone. I think valuation is compelling. And I think AMAT is going to catch up to the rest of the tech sector. All right. I'm Melissa Lee. Thanks so much for watching. See you back here tomorrow at 5 more fast. Meantime, Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. Olay. <laughs> you seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.